All right, my friends, let's uh, start having a seat. We'll begin in just a few moments. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O heavenly King, O comfort of the Spirit of truth, who art in all places and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O gracious Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Father James has been taking us through the snake bite letters to get us better adjusted to discerning the strategies that Satan uses to divide us from the union with Christ that he has so desired to bestow upon us, the very reason for his incarnation. And, and it's been, for me, it's been wonderful because just like when I read the screw tape letters and then hearing Father James talk about the snake bite letters, it just adds better filters to the discernment to see his activity, which, by the way, is oh so redundant. That's why even if you look at the, at the screw tape letters and you look at the snake bite letters, it's the same deceits just for a different age. And that's the way that Satan works. He's not worked any differently since the garden. He's the uncreative. God is the creative and the creator. So what we're going to do today, everything in that book, by the way, if you read it, it, takes, it gives us those discernment points of how Satan's strategies are working in our lives, but then it very much highlights what he is using those strategies to keep us from an, from an encounter with our Lord Jesus Christ in some way, whether it's in our daily prayer life, whether it's in the liturgical life of the church, he is seeking to divide us from everything that Christ has offered that is literally the funnel for Him pouring all the benefits of His kingdom and our salvation into our lives. Okay? 
So today, we're going to talk about the first of two major things that the book even mentions, that Satan tries to mess up our thinking about, so that somehow we will treat those gifts of God to the people of God differently or abandon them altogether. Today, we talk about the sacrament of confession. Because two of the things that he highlights in the snakebite letters is Satan using his strategies to keep us from the sacrament of confession and the sacrament of Holy Eucharist. And by the way, these two things are also tied together in the activities of Christ in our life and for our salvation. And so this is the work of Satan. So what we're going to do, and you see it on the screen, I just kind of gave you, this is where we're going today. We're going to talk about an overview of the sacrament of confession and absolution. We're going to talk about Satan's strategies and deceits in the ways that he tries to keep us from this sacrament and why. And then we're going to look at the power and ministry of Jesus Christ in the sacrament of confession and absolution for our healing and for our salvation, which is why he throws so many deceits to keep us from this blessed sacrament. Make sense? This is where we're going. But I want to start reading, from you, reading for you from the snakebite letters on how Satan and why Satan is trying to keep us from both of these sacraments so often, confession and Eucharist. Listen to the words from the book where the elder demon is mentoring the younger demon. If the Christian goes to church, don't let him focus on the enemy's son or his real presence in the Eucharist. Terrible, terrible things go on in that tabernacle and on that altar and in that confessional. Oh, the pain, the fear, the powerlessness we feel there. Keep them away from the dreaded building at any cost, foul or even fair. Here are two equally effective traps to keep them both from confession and communion. And they're the same two traps that will eventually keep them out of heaven. Pride and despair. They are opposites. But it does not matter which one we use. The only thing that matters is whether a thing leads to the enemy or to our Father below. All else is relative, a mere means to that final end. You can induce despair by getting him to see the church as a museum for saints rather than a hospital for sinners and making him think he's not good enough for such a holy society. By the way, I was asked by a friend of mine, when I, when I moved towards the historic faith, and to, particularly to the Orthodox Church, he asked me this question. He used these words. He said, he said look, Mark, and come on, is, is, the, is the church a hospital for saints or a museum for sinners? And I looked at him. I said, your question implies that it has to be either or, when it's infinitely both and for our salvation. Let them see it as one without the other. You can induce pride by the very same vision of the church, but the opposite vision of himself as worthy rather than unworthy of saint society. For either he will see himself as unworthy of the saint museum, and then despair keeps him out, or as worthy of it, and then pride keeps him out. For even though he enters the door, he isn't really in. Because the only door through which anyone's soul can enter the church and approach Christ is the little door of humility and repentance. The door only the child can enter, as the enemy's son so disgustingly said. 
Isn't that good? Pride and despair. We're going to see how he uses both to keep us even from the sacrament of confession. And why does Satan not want us to come to the Christ in the sacrament of confession? Because, listen to what the elder demon said to the one he was mentoring. Terrible things go on in confession. For us, terrible things. For the demons, terrible things go on in confession. Oh, the pain, the fear, the powerlessness we feel there. And why are the demons in pain and fear and feel powerless when the Christian is engaging Christ in that relationship that he offers, that experience he offers in the sacrament of confession? Because our Savior is present. And we are presenting ourselves to him in theory, coming in the humility of knowing, help me, I need, I need, I need. I am fallen. I have things in my life that are destroying me. Come and put a salve on all of this and rescue me. And Christ is present right there to do so. Every time we come to him again and again, and Satan knows that. You see, remember, God is the one who orchestrated, ordered the sacraments for the salvation of man. Man didn't think about these things on their own. They are tangible vehicles where, and even according to the definition of a sacrament, what's a sacrament? God taking something that he created or someone that he created, setting that aside for his holy use only, and then through that person or through that item that he created, doing the wonders of salvation for mankind. God has never ceased to be sacramental. You look at the old covenant, look, look at the staff of Aaron. My friends, it's a piece of wood. Where'd the piece of wood come from? A tree. Who created the tree? God takes the stuff of his creation. He sets it aside. Look at all the wonders for the release of God's people to deliver them out of their bondage through the stuff of earth. Bread and wine. Stuff of his creation. He takes and makes his body and blood for the remission of our sins and for the grace for new life. And what does he do in the sacrament of confession? He separates holy space, all of it, sacred space, the iconography, the whole atmosphere. And he sets apart a man who is in equal, equal need of forgiveness and salvation as anyone who comes, the priest. Never forget this. In the church, it's always a hierarchy of equality. The one who you are coming to, who's going to not, you're not going to confess to a man. You're coming to a man so that man can bring you to Jesus. Which is why our posture in confession is, I bring you from the pew and I bring you up and I bring you to the icon of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't stand in front of you, I stand next to you in support of you, praying for you and listening both to you and Christ as best I can in the time of confession. And that's what he uses. And speaking about taking a man in need of salvation and using a, just a man in that need to be the ministry of God, to release you from your sins, to bring to you the salve of your conscience, and to gift you with the grace to overcome those sins. Never forget what our Lord Jesus Christ said in St. John the Gospel of St. John, chapter 20, verses 21 through 23. This is after his resurrection. And he comes to his disciples. He appears to them. And Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. Now, 
get your ears wide open because this next one sentence will forever continue to blow my mind, even, even as I glanced at it. Peace to you. As the Father sent me, I send you. Now you think of this. What he's saying is just in the same way that the Father sent me, the incarnation to this world, now I am sending you for the self-same ministry. And what was the ministry of the incarnation? To show forth God, to show forth who He is, and to redeem and restore mankind back to God. Now I could go on and on about many other aspects of the incarnation, but get the point of what He's saying to His disciples. It is strong. You'll see this even in the next sentence. Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Do you hear the authority? This is authority being given. My authority to forgive sins, I give to you. And if you retain any of the sins, they are retained. They are retained. Now Christ alone, even though He's setting apart a man, Christ alone is the one who is forgiving sins through the man. That's the sacramental activity. But He chooses the man and gives the authority. And this is by His will this has been done in the church. And it is for you, and it's also for the man serving as the priest for his salvation, that this happens. You see this? This is what's happening in the authority that's been given to the church for this. And by the way, let me, let me show you St. Ambrose in the mid-4th century, mid-300s. But what was impossible was made possible by God, who gave us so great a grace, it seemed likewise impossible for sins to be forgiven through confession. Yet Christ granted it even to His apostles, and by His apostles it has been transmitted to the offices of priests. That authority line of the forgiving of sins, but also if somebody does not come with repentance to discern that, not to negate them the forgiveness, but to help them come to it. If somebody comes to me confessing the sins of his wife, or husband, or anybody in the body of Christ, or confessing the sins they think have been done by them, by their leadership, we got to pause. We're not getting anywhere. I'm not here to forgive them. They didn't come to confession. I am here to forgive your fallenness and sins and to bring the healer to you and you to him. You see? So we always get back to that. But that has been given to his church and handed down through the line of authority that Christ is the one that implemented no man. No man put this into place. And that's even in the mid-300s. We see this fully in operation. And know this, Satan is fully aware of both Christ's ministry and his presence in the sacrament of confession, just as he is in the Eucharist. He's well aware of the order and the authority that Christ has given his church to aid those souls that come to Christ in the sacrament of confession. Satan and his demonic know full well that in that sacrament they are thrown down and they are dismissed from the scene so that Christ's healing and mercy can come to a human person. 
That's why the writer says we're terrified there because we have no hope of any activity in that sacrament. And once cleared away, it clears the path for Christ to bring His mercy to the person in need and His grace for transformation. And the demonic know this. And the Satan and the demonic are also exposed in confession. Their deceits are exposed in confession and they're overthrown. And then we are released and relieved and given grace to do the last thing that our enemy wants, free now to become more like God, like we were created to be, unbound by what we brought in, by what we brought in to become like Him. And Satan and the demonic absolutely do not want us to have that encounter with Christ precisely because they know the ministry of salvation that Jesus works on our behalf every time that we come. I want to talk about the strategies that Satan uses. The strategies that Satan uses regarding confession to keep us away from it. And I'm going to start with this, Satan's constant ministry of extreme thinking. He wants to put in our minds extremes about confession that go one of two ways. The first one you see up there, it's not necessary. You don't need this. You don't need this. We reject it as being necessary and useful for our salvation. We deny that Christ, our great physician, really gave us such an exact prescription to heal the illness of our soul. Which is really what Satan saying what he said since the garden deceit. Did God really tell you to do this? Did God, no, better. Did God really provide you an opportunity to be with him like that? Is that really something God has done? And orchestrated and so we play with it in our mind and then here's the here's a big one that can this comes from my Protestant background but that gets into many I can go directly to Jesus what are you doing in confession we're going directly to Jesus you're not going to a priest it's a sacrament established for a purpose that we're going to talk about as far as Christ's ministry at the end of this what Jesus does in the sacrament of confession. But one of the extremes is, did God really say, you don't need this, you never need to touch that sacrament, there are other ways. By the way, does that echo anything to you about his original deceit? Don't eat of the tree. Well, no, no, go ahead, because God knows if you eat of the tree, you'll become like him, find your own path to become like him. In other words, determine your own way. It's the ultimate of humanism where the truth resides and emanates from the individual, not from a God who transforms the individual by the revelation of the truth, you see? So that's one of the extremes that he delves in greatly in the lives of all of us. We don't need it. It's not necessary. The opposite extreme is this. I can't live without it. I can't ever receive anything good from God without it. I dare not ever come and receive Eucharist if I've not done confession before that very Sunday. It's the juridical, by a law feeling view of confession and absolution that has never been the prominent teaching of the church. Now I want to say something about this. Because I know many go out and they look at what other jurisdictions, all the different jurisdictions are doing when it comes to preparation for Eucharist or preparation for confession. I want you to understand this. There's never been a time in 2,000 years where all of them have been perfectly the same. 
Why? It has nothing to do with the way that the church views confession. That's where the faith is concerned. It has to do with the pastoral oversight of the sheep. And I don't care what the Greeks are doing. I don't care what the Russians or the OCA or all the different jurisdictions are doing because they have, the, they have the responsibility to pastor their own sheep when it comes to the sacrament of confession. We are under an authority just like they are. They follow their authority. They're bringing people to Christ in confession. Thank God. We are under an authority that gives us the guidelines, the pastoral guidelines of how often we must and then how we need to approach confession, and we distribute that for the salvation of the souls within our jurisdiction. Very true. Some, so yeah, some, some, he said some priests are not allowed to hear confessions. A lot of times where you find that is in a situation where you've got a very new and younger priest they want them to have some pastoral experience. They're going to give them other ways in that parish to hear confession. They're not, they're not you know, taking that away from the faithful. But they're going to let a priest get seasoned in his pastoral ministry and under some continuous um, mentoring when it comes to being the father confessor before they start hearing confessions. So father's exactly right. And all the different jurisdictions have different ways of looking at when a person's ready for that. All of that doesn't matter. What matters is to follow what the Spirit has said where you are and be faithful to it and come to Christ in confession. Does that make sense? By the way, if I showed you, speaking of, speaking of, of sacraments and spiritual disciplines, somebody posted this and, and my eyes went crossed. Somebody posted on Facebook a 2,000-year timeline of all the different fasting regulations through 2,000 years and it's like it was it was nothing like this here it wasn't like this here it wasn't like this here it's all it's all changing and different here's the reality it doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit was guiding the church to pastor the people to fast and right now the fasting regulations that we have are given to us by the Holy Spirit passed down through the leadership we follow them and we know we're good before the Lord we can have that peace. The church, one of the things when I came in, looking, coming from a Protestant standpoint, you know, I was coming into the church and thinking, I'm going to hear all the angels and the perfect harmony and every jurisdiction and every parish is going to look the same, practice the same, be this hogwash. <laughs> the spirit is the same. The faith is the same. And every one of them are pastoring according to the guidance of the Holy Spirit for the souls therein. Jesus knows what people need at various times. There's never not been fasting. It's just a matter of how the Holy Spirit is led to induce that and bring that into the people's spirituality that might bring them better to Christ during those times. That's why you see all those variations. The same thing. The extreme is to see it as a juridical act. This is not a juridical act. It is an invitation by a very real, real Savior who loves your soul and wants you to experience him. Okay? Does that make sense? So the ministry of extremes is one thing that he's about. The second one. Hide from God. Hide from God. The satanic shame that he brings into the scene. Which again, we talk about the lack of creativity. It goes back to the garden. 
Because remember what happened. They ate of the tree. God came calling for them. What did they do? Why, think better yet. You know they hid. That's a given. Why did they hide? Yeah, but why did they hide? Think through it. Give me some more verbiage. What do you think was going on in them? They knew they did something wrong. They knew they were disobedient. And guess, guess what? Someone whispered in their ear, look at who you are. Look at what you've become. Look at what you've done. You dare not go before God. Church fathers, they will tell you. They, they can't bring this to a conclusion because this is not what happened. But they said, what may have happened if Adam and Eve had heeded the voice of God to come? All the fathers will say is there's not a time in the whole history of the church, not one time where the penitent person has gone before God and not been absolved by the mercy of God. The fall was two deceptions. Find your own way to God. Find your own way to become like God. And secondly, because you messed it up and did it your own way, hide from Him. And that's the second satanic shame when our Lord Jesus Christ in His love is saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. That's the voice of Christ we even hear after our confession in Mass. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Does that sound like a juridical God who is out to beat the living snot out of you because of what you are, what you've done, and what you've become? It's the antithesis of who God is, and that's what Satan constantly whispers in our ear. How about this one? Here's one we don't consider very often, and we need to consider it more. The deceit that your sin only impacts you. That there's not a corporate aspect, a corporate result, a corporate impact of my sin on the whole. Let me give you two examples from Scripture. Adam and Eve. I'd say it had pretty, their sin had pretty wide-ranging impact. Would we agree? How about another one? Joshua led Israel to Jericho. And God calls Joshua into the tabernacle and he tells him how he's going to get the walls down. He gives him the marching orders. But one of the things that God tells Joshua when he's before God in the tabernacle is in Joshua, you tell them, anything in, Jer in Jericho, they can take, they can have, once you take it, except one thing. Do not touch, tell them, no one is to touch or take the devoted things, devoted items. What's a devoted item? Anything that was used in the worship of a pagan god. Idols, statues, food offered to, you name it. Don't touch any of the devoted things. So here they go through. The walls come down. They win a battle they should have never won by the hand of God. And so they're rejoicing. Not long after, God calls them to a new skirmish. And in this skirmish, this was one the opposite of Jericho. They should have easily won, easily defeated. And they go out and they battle, and God's people lose the battle. And Joshua goes back to God in the tabernacle, utterly devastated and confused. You told us to do this just like you did Jericho. How could we have lost this? This one. 
And God says, because one of you took the devoted items. And so they skirt, they go all through the camp, and they discover a man named Achan right outside of his tent had buried some devoted items that he had taken. One man's falling short cost the entire Israel a battle they should have won. So even in the Old Covenant, we see that our sin only is, doesn't just impact us as individuals. That's how joined we are as the body of Christ in oneness by the blood of Christ. Now, how does this play out? This can actually play out seeing the corporate aspect of our sin can play out immensely in our overcoming sin in our lives. Think about this. If, if I'm letting Christ heal my soul, I am growing to love you more with his love all throughout time. And if I am keenly aware of the truth that my sin can impact you somehow, that is a motivation. It is a deep encouragement that has grown out of the love that I have for you and all of you in the body of Christ. And listen to me, I'm not just talking about myself as a priest, as a Christian. We can see it this way. My love for you, the body of Christ, can be an absolute sword and shield to temptations. And help me come out of the pit. Do you see that? But don't play with it. I'm going to tell you this. There's mystery in this. I can't explain to you how that works. I wish I could, but I can't. Nobody, I've never seen anybody be able to explain it other than to utter the truth. That our sin impacts one another in the body of Christ because we're one and we're one with Christ. So that's one of the other ones that Satan uses against us. And you know, there are so many other deceits. Oh, in fact, before I even go there, I don't know if you've noticed, speaking on the corporate sense, have you noticed most of the confessions in your prayer books, the confidior prayers that we pray at the altar, and the confession prayer we pray in the sacrament of confession? The confession words listen to this. It tells us the corporate nature of our sin. Because we don't just confess to God alone. I confess to Almighty God, He's first. To Blessed Mary Ever-Virgin, to Blessed Michael the Archangel, to Blessed John the Baptist, to the Holy Apostles Peter and Paul, to all the saints and to Thee, Father, that I've sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed by my fault. Now why in the world would we be confessing to anybody other than God if our sin was so individualistic and only impacted us? It's the whole. You have a great book, called, I think it's called The Reconciling Community. It really is the history of confession in the church. And when the church was smaller, and, and, and even large groups were meeting in homes, but smaller than we have today there in Jerusalem, confession, the confession would work like this. They'd go up to the front with the priest, and they'd confess to Christ and everyone. Church now thinks it makes it easy on you. You don't have to do that anymore. Just come to the priest and come before God. But they did it before one another. Very good, yes. Exactly. The whole, in fact, the whole body of Christ eternal. Gone before us and still here. Far more greater than we think is sin and the impact that it has. Also far greater the healing of Christ. Okay? Far greater the healing of Christ. Okay, other deceits that he throws at us. I'll just throw some out. You know you've had this before. Some of you. Father is so much older than I am. 
He can't understand what I'm going through in these days. Father is so much younger than I am. He's never been through these things. I see Saint I see Saint Paul just going, man. Because he was there. He had older and younger. All the apostles, it's always been. Through St. Paul, I would actually offer his words to answer that question. All that is true, but it's not I, but Christ that lives now in me. You know, when a priest is made a priest, and I think I've shared this. Some of you haven't heard it before. Some of you have. When a priest is made a priest and his head is placed on the altar, thank God, with the rest of his body. But his, his head is placed on the altar, and they put hands on it. That the bishop places his hand, and I'm going to summarize the prayer that he prays. He prays, Christ, be the sufficiency in his deficiency for the sake of your people. There's nothing that Christ can't do with any of you. There's nothing that Christ can't do through me. Because Christ is in us. And he's the one that graced that sacrament and set the person aside for it. The man doesn't have to understand. The man has to listen to Christ and give you what Christ offers. That's what needs to happen. We need to learn to be obedient to that concept. Yes. So it doesn't matter about the priest. He's been given the grace to hear the confession, the prayer and absolution, and we need to go to him and not be saying, oh, and I think it's a satanic temptation. Yes. You don't want to go to Father so-and-so. He doesn't know anything. Yeah. Um, How about this one? He's not as good at it. But do it. Do it anyway. And I found out that 99.999% of the time he's absolutely right in what he says is pertinent. And I'm going to tell you this. Let me tell you from the priest's standpoint. Nine out of ten times, I'm wondering if what I'm saying is going to do anything for you because I don't get it. Yeah. I get it and I don't get it. I've learned to say, just say what's, my, what's inside of me says, say this. That's it. And, that's and nothing saying. more. And nothing more. So it goes both ways. See, the priest has to walk in the same obedience as the person. We're joined together in a relationship of obedience before Christ in the sacrament of confession. Satan wants none of that because that's where the healing work happens. No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Father Zacharias and Saint Sophroni both mentioned that, that shame in the confessional is a healing thing. Mm. And so when we feel shame, there's a healthy shame. There is. Healthy shame. Shame that I'm a sinner, that I've done this. Lord, I've screwed up really bad. I see myself clearly. Yeah. Uh, and, and that yeah. is a healthy thing. That's what we try to avoid, and that's what the devil tries to make us avoid. You don't want to be embarrassed. Why not? And that leads me to the next one. Here's the other deceit. Here's the next deceit. If I, can sin, if I confess my sin in front of Father, He's never going to see me the same. He's never going to look at me the same. He'll look down on me. He'll never be able to get over what He just heard. So let me take care of this really quickly. I look down on all of you all the time. <laughs> so you have absolutely no worries about coming to me. Let's get it out of the way. 
wisdom in that because yeah. he's not concerned with what he hears yeah. in that sense. Yeah. He's not sitting back there going, oh, oh my God, you did what? Yeah. He doesn't care. He must yeah. read some paper or whatever. And, 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 and most priests I know also have terrible memory. So. <laughs> I got I got I got news for you. There is a grace to forgetfulness. Yeah. We couldn't handle it. We couldn't handle it. And, and I'm going to tell you this very, very think about this that it actually matches the nature of God. What does God do when he hears our confession and grants his mercy and forgiveness? He remembers he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west, remembering it no more. And here's the reality. That doesn't mean for the priest that he really doesn't remember at all what somebody confessed. But what it does is it removes any negativity in his own soul about what the person confessed. There's never been one time, and I have heard it all. And by the way, that's, that's the other thing I want to tell you. You know I love you guys dearly. But the reality is you all are not that creative to, to, to freak me out. <laughs> you know, I have, I, there is, and there's no new sin under the earth. Under heaven. Huh? Challenge accepted? Bring it. Bring it. That's, that's man stuff right there. Now we're doing confession. All right. <laughs> yeah, Marilyn. That the serpent was present in the garden. Okay. We know he was. Pre we know he was present. Okay, so. Mm -hmm. Okay, it means that that sin is always going to be with the, the man. Temptation. The temptation. Okay. On this side of paradise, been there since the garden. Yeah, yeah. So let's. So, so, uh, yeah. I have another one. Yes. So I think Over and over again? Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, you say, Here I am again. So sorry. Were you really? And my answer is yes, keep coming. Most, and, and I would say that it, when I look at my life, I've got a particular pattern that gets me the most above all of them. Just like you and everybody else. The only way to find healing is to keep coming and coming and coming. Remember that parable of, of the woman that kept being be begging and begging and begging and begging and finally the king relented? So keep begging. He's working out his salvation even in the midst of your frustration and wrestling of the sin. He knows what he's doing. You keep coming. Well, yeah. It's yeah. With humility that you can change your mind. You have to, yeah. Be, yeah. You have to humble yourself over and over again. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Yeah, we need even grace for that. So I think it's one of the songs. I'm curious how, how this fits in. Where, where David says, against you and you only, if I sin, going back to that corporate nature. Yeah. Yeah. How does 
the impact of the sin. Okay, so the, okay. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, I know, I know where, you're, where you're coming from, but it's, it's both end. It's one of those that's both end. Let's move on. We need to go on for time's sake to get on. But you get the ideas of the various deceits that, that Satan uses to keep us from this blessed sacrament. Now what we're going to look at is what he's keeping us from, which is the divine ministry of Christ for our salvation. Okay? And so when I look at the ministry of Christ our God and the sacrament of confession, I boil it down into three main things. These are not exhaustive. But three main things. In the sacrament of confession, our accuser is thrown down and dismissed from us. Remember in the book, he talked about Satan and the demons being powerless, terrified, and so, and, and so on. The accuser is thrown down and dismissed from us. He grants us then his divine mercy as he forgives our sins. And we are given his divine grace to go and sin no more by what we become. The healing of our souls and the becoming and the sin begins to reduce in our lives. Let me give you, and I do this with the catechumens and inquirers. There is one story of Christ forgiving in the Gospels that shows every one of these all at once. And to my knowledge, there's only one. You know, if I find another one, great, but I have searched. But it's from St. John chapter 8. It's the woman caught in adultery who, by the way, didn't even ask for forgiveness. You remember this story. She's caught in adultery, and so the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders, a whole mob of them, catch her, bring her, catch her in the act, probably plotted to, because what they were really wanting to do is catch Jesus. And so they caught her in the act, brought her into the temple where Jesus was. Jesus was seated, and they bring her before him, and they ask, what shall we do? Now they knew that the law said, this woman must be stoned to death. She was caught in the act of adultery. That was by the law of God. And they say, Jesus, what shall we do? Trying to catch him somehow. If he, if he says, stoner, he's not merciful. He's not, the, he's not the Messiah. You see what I'm saying? They're trying to catch him in something. And so the Lord is writing in the sand. And a lot of the fathers say he was writing their sins in the sand. And so then... He looks up and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And we're told one by one, from the youngest to the oldest, they drop it in the dirt and go away. Now this poor woman, remember, she is probably catatonic in fear, paralyzed. Because she knows her life is about to end painfully, horribly. And so he goes to her next. What's the first thing he did? He dismissed the accusers. Then he goes to her. He says, woman, where are your accusers? And she turns around to her shock, because remember, she's in paralysis emotionally right now with fears and so on. She turns around and she says, no, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. What happens next? Your sins are forgiven. Now that I've dismissed your accuser, your sins are forgiven. But then it doesn't stop there. Now, go and sin no more. And he never tells someone to do what he doesn't give them the ability to do because he does not bring people to despair. And this is the fullness of the ministry. I want to talk about the accuser part. Now, who is the accuser of the brethren according to Scripture? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. What does that mean? 
You see what you've done. You see you're no good. You see what you've become. How dare you go before? Go hide. That's his voice, the accuser. But I got news for you. The accuser only starts the ball rolling. We become the accuser. We join him in self-accusation, and it won't let go. And we beat ourselves, and we beat ourselves, and, I, and we beat ourselves, and we don't go to God. And that's what he's after. But we become the accuser. This is why I love what's, what Father Alexander Schmemann says about confession. He said that in confession, he said, confession mends our relationship to God. It heals our relationship one to another, but then listen to the third thing it says. Christ even heals and mends our relationship to ourselves. And that is huge. I would dare say that most people in here suffer from a warped view of self that is not God's view of yourself. And this is part of what our Lord Jesus Christ heals in the sacrament of confessor. He dismisses the accuser even when that accuser is you. Because until the accuser is out of the way, there's not a path for his mercy. He knows how to do this. He knows what you need every time you come to confession. And so now we can actually experience not the thought of his mercy, but experience his mercy in our lives, covering our sin and letting our conscience, the shoulders of our conscience go like this again. That's the experience he gives us. And that's not it. We're not done yet. But because all of these sins and the fallenness has been killing you, I'm going to bestow grace upon you. I'm going to give wisdom to the priest to share with you my mind on what you should go and do to walk in the grace that I've given you to become something you were never before. That's the power and the love and the actual ministry of Christ in the sacrament of confession. And like Father has said, there are times, these times of confession, it seems like nothing really happened. No, not some great grandeur emotional experience, but it has been done. You will encounter times where it will be a profoundly emotional experience. I can tell you by the numbers of boxes of Kleenexes that I go through, both on the front end of confession and on the rear end of confession. And I'm going to close with this story. This I've shared also once. I think before, and I do share it with the catechumens. I want to tell you what Jesus used to, what's the word I'm looking at? Convince me that the sacrament of confession was valid and of Christ. And this was in the very early stages where I had just begun, just begun to look at the historic faith. So at that time, I was a co-pastor at a church that was going after unchurched people. And in my house, in our house every week, we had uh, 10 to 15 people come over for a Bible study once a week. We had a new young man named Jonathan. Uh, he was probably in his mid-20s, started coming to the church, started coming to our house for the study and prayer. And one night, this must have been months after he'd come to us, one night on a Friday night at 9 o'clock at night, he rings the doorbell of my house. And I opened the door, and I was stunned to see him. I said, what's going on? He said, can, can I come in? Can we talk for a minute? I could see he really wanted to talk. 
So I said, sure. So we went into my living room. He had just been to see the movie uh, Martin Luther, or it's called Luther, based on the life of Martin Luther. I'd actually just seen that a couple of weeks before Jonathan came over. And he looked at me, he said, have you seen it? I said, yeah. He said, that first scene, he said, Luther is confessing to his father confessor. I said, I remember that. Then he goes on and talks about something else. He keeps returning. He keeps returning again and again to that scene. I looked at him. I said, Jonathan, do you want to do confession? He said, yeah. I said, man, I am not a priest. I am not a priest. But I tell you what, let's go into my office. I actually happen to have an Anglican book of prayer. I've been actually looking at confession. Let's go in. So we did it together. So we get to the point. He goes through it. And we get to the point where he confesses his sins. And this man, by the way, every time he'd come to the, the study and, and to church, you know, you, you, you got your huggers and your non-huggers, right? This was a non-hugger. And I knew it. So shaking of the hand, because I'm a hugger. And I know a non-hugger. Oh, thank you. Right? It's one of those. So, um, so you learn that very quickly. But... Um, so he said, yeah, I want to do confession. So he starts to confess his sins. And he confesses probably 10 to 15 years of some extraordinary, extraordinary sexual sins in his life. And this man is losing it in my office. And the tears are all over the place. He is a mess. I've never seen him like this. Stuff that was built up for so long. And so then it comes, he's done. And all I do is say from the book, the words of absolution from our Lord Jesus Christ. And that young man's tears of absolute uh, angst and, and, and heartache over what he'd done turned to tears of joy like this. Jonathan stood up and grabbed me. <laughs> and he wouldn't let go. And I'll never forget that. And the Lord took that opportunity to show me what he does, that I gave confession to my people, for my people, and I will use what I will use in my order to save people. And I was, that was enough for me. I say it again, not every experience is going to be that, but I got to tell you something, there are times you'll come to confession where God is getting at a deeply rooted brokenness in you. And you will have the most profound experience where your life will never be the same. Other times, it's step by step, stone by stone, journey of journey of clearing the path for Christ to come to us and impact us. That is okay and needed. Does that make sense? Does this help you? I pray so. Let's stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all.